So this evening, I want to look at grasping and creative engagement. You might have heard me say creative engagement, and in a way, what do I mean by that? And this is a little connected with what I was telling you to look at today in terms of the contact, in terms of the sensation. And, I mean, the Buddha talked about it, and Stephen must have mentioned it, the, this idea that contact is really one of the places, I would say, there is a point of freedom. Because when we come into contact with the senses, what we hear, what we feel, etc., what we see, then, in a way, we have the opportunity to grasp or we have the opportunity to creatively engage. And so that's why I'm talking about this now, so that in a way you have the opportunity to look at contact. I remember I once I was in um, uh, leading a retreat in South Africa, and uh, there had been a lot of talk about being silent. And I mean, over there, it's very difficult to have people silent. I mean, it's... anyway. Uh, and so there was lots of talk about it and everything. And then as I was coming back, I heard a manager talking with somebody. It was quite loud. And then I started to think about it and ruminate about it. And later I learned, actually, that she had a good reason to talk to that person. It was not idle chatter. You know, she had a good reason. And then I realized why. Did I get upset about it? Why did I ruminate about it? Because of the contact. I heard a voice. And then because of what I did with that contact, I started to actually proliferate around it. I, started, I did not really know what it was about. I just heard sound. But out of that, I went into a huge story about it. And then I saw... The, the, the problem was with, not with the contact, but what happens when there is contact? What do we do? Do we grasp or do we creatively engage? And so to me, this is really one of the points of freedom, in a way, one of the points of choice, that moment of contact. And so I would say that meditation really helps us to creatively engage. And by that I mean to encounter and to engage differently with what we come in contact with. That it be inside ourselves, that it be outside of ourselves. And so, this is my little party tricks. Some people have already known about it, but I keep doing it because some have not seen it. And because even if you have seen it, you might still not really apply it because, you know, we get caught by contact. So here it is, my little party trick. So this is to demonstrate grasping. So this is gold, diamond, or it is the greatest truth in the universe. And I have got it. This is very important, you know. It's mine. I hold on to it because it's mine. And I want to protect it. I don't really want to share it, or not for very long. So I hold on to it. So I do this. If I do this, two things happen. First, I get a cramp in the arm. 
So I think it's very important to see that often when there is suffering, it's because there is tension, and there is tension because we grasp. But there is something much more problematic with this, is that by grasping at this, I cannot use my hand for anything else. So I am stuck to what I am grasping at. I think this is very important to see. And that's why often we have suffering because of this feeling of limitation. And in a way, we limit ourselves by grasping. And so you could say, two solutions. First solution, I cut the end. A bit drastic, I would say. But this is asceticism. This is, I mean, actually, asceticism is about that. Get rid of the end, I'm not going to grasp. Personally, I don't think this is very practical. Next thing, that's an interesting one. This is also partly the monastic method. Get rid of the object. If there is no object to come in contact with, I am not going to grasp. But I don't think this is really the problem. The object is not saying, come, 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 you really want to grasp at me. I mean, advertisement does that, you know, and give a glow and think, yeah. But, I mean, the object is an object. It comes upon conditions. It's not saying anything to us. So the problem is not with the object. And so to me, what, what, do we, what we do when we meditate? What we do when we meditate is that actually, over time, slowly, 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 we learn to open our hand. So that then the object, we can come into contact with the object, we can use it, and we can let it go. There can be this movement. So there is no this tension, there is no this limitation. And for me, this is what is essential to see. That when we grasp, we generally identify. The two comes together. I, me, mine. This is mine. This is happening to me. There is a lot of self in grasping. And when we grasp and identify, then we solidify around what we grasp. And also we isolate ourselves with what we grasp at. And then, and that's what is the worst, we magnify it. This is important to see. And then, what we grasp at, we overwhelm by it, and it is overwhelming. So in a way, we diminish our power, and we increase the power of what we're grasping at. And then we feel generally very stuck, and it's generally very painful. And what to me is one of the great problems is that when we grasp at, we reduce ourselves to what we grasp at, and then we stop our creative potential from manifesting because it's too tight. So the creative potential, in a way, can only manifest, I would say, in the multi-perspectival complex city of our whole being. But if we reduce ourselves to a sensation, to a feeling, to whatever, then we become just that, very small. And our creative potential can't do much there. And so in a way, I would say meditation is actually to allow us, and again, this thing about spaciousness, to become more spacious when we come in contact. 
And then our creative potential has more space to generate itself, to happen, to come out. But also with grasping, there is what I would call, in a way, three sidelines to it that are important to see that happen. Generally, when we grasp at something, we actually then start to proliferate with it, and then we go into abstraction. So, for example, just to give you a little example, I don't know if you notice, I don't know if you are into gardening, but along the front of the house, there is a beautiful purple-pink rose. Many petals, very beautiful. So you, if you're a gardener, you notice the rose, and you think, mm, this is a beautiful rose. And in a way, the creative engagement is just to see the beauty of the rose. It is not going to last, but as it is there, you can admire the color, the shape, the form. It is beautiful to, to behold. But what do we do often? Oh, it's a beautiful rose. I wonder what kind of rose it is. I wonder where I could find such a rose. Could I find such a rose in that gardening center? And if I found it in that gardening center, where should I put it in the garden? Should I put it in the corner there? I am a bit far from the rose, aren't I? I am not with the beauty of the rose anymore. I have moved into abstraction. And I think it's very important to see that often when there is grasping, there is <coughs> proliferation. We move away from what we grasp at to proliferation around it. And we go into abstraction. And this is why actually our creative potential can't do much in abstraction. It can only be activated in this moment. Another thing we do with grasping, it's exaggeration. We encounter something that it be beautiful, that it be horrible, and if we grasp at it, we magnify it, it is fantastic. It is terrible. And again, to see, instead of, oh, this is beautiful, oh, this is dreadful, when it's beautiful, how can I creatively engage with it? When it's dreadful, how can I creatively engage with it? And stay with what is there, instead of this exaggeration. We have a tendency to exaggerate. And to see that, in a way, by exaggerating, we actually, again, stop us from creatively engaging with what is really going on. And with that, there is a third, in a way, sideline to the grasping, which is generalizing. This is interesting. We grasp at a problem, for example, something happened. It's terrible. It's awful. It's always awful. It's always terrible. And again, it's kind of like you, you generalize it. You make it like it's always like that. And I mean, what can you do with always? I mean, you can deal with the dreadful situation which has happened now, but you can't deal with the dreadful situation forever after. And that's why we feel often very important. I, I can't deal with this. I can't stand this. Because of that exaggeration, that proliferation, that 
generalization. So to me, this is actually like a sign. I would say when you start to, to see proliferation or exaggeration or generalization, look, what is it I am grasping at? Generally, it's a sign. It's a signal that there is some grasping, that there is some tension, there is some limitation. But then there is another aspect of grasping which is very important to see. That grasping is not just what I would call positive grasping, grasping at something I like. But it's also what I could call negative grasping. And actually grasping negatively at something I don't like. And this is what I would call rejection. That you grasp at something because you want it, or that you reject something because you don't want it, you give it more power. You make it bigger. You make it last longer. It becomes exaggerated in the same way. You, in a way, set up the same force field. Think about somebody, maybe at the office, which said something to you or did something you really did not like, was very painful, hurtful, you really upset. I mean, it lasted 10 minutes, and then you have to go home. But in the car, in the bus, you keep thinking, he or she did this, and how could they? And really, this is horrible, and they're always like this, and really, this office is so bad, and you go round and round. You get out of the car, out of the bus, you go open the door, it's around. You see your wife or husband or children, and it is on your mind. You do the dishes or put the thing in the washing machine, dishwasher, it's there. You go to bed, it's there. But as a person asked to be in your head for so long, I mean, the person did something six hours ago, definitely, but they did, not say, they did not say, oh, I want to stay in your head, you know, forever after. But we are keeping the person in the head because we grasp at it. They said this, and this is terrible. And I'm not saying it is not terrible. But the fact that you keep thinking at it in this grasping way, in this rejecting way, is generally not going to help you and actually going to be very stressful because you won't be present to the driving, to being home, to your wife, to your children, or whoever, and you won't be able to sleep. So in terms of it's not very beneficial for you to the next day creatively find a way to engage with that person or resolve the situation. And so now what I like to do a little is look at, in a way, the contact. First to look at the contact in terms of the senses that Stephen mentioned this afternoon, the eyes, the ears, and look a little at the indication that that could give us about grasping and also something that you could do while you are here. Because you don't have so many distractions, so many things to do. And it becomes easier to see what happened when I see something. What happened when I hear something? Do I creatively engage with it? Do I grasp at it? Do I reject it? So the eyes. Beautiful things. So again, we can... I explain about the beautiful flowers. I mean, there is a lot of beautiful flowers here. Or even you have the beautiful view. 
I mean, it's quite beautiful around here. And you could look at the view, and it's beautiful. And just be with the beauty of it, the expanse of it, and it will be nurtured by that. Or you could be, oh yeah, it's beautiful, but maybe there could be more forest. Oh, it's so much better than where I live. If only I could live in Gaia House. Oh yes, ah oh, yes, it would be so much nicer if I lived here. Oh yes, and then, and then you actually are not enjoying the view anymore because you're doing comparing, positive comparing, negative comparing. I'm not saying it might be necessary for you to move from the town. That's another story. But to see what we set up. Often what we do is that in a way we stop ourselves from being really with what is. And in a way being nurtured by that. Or if there is something um, kind of dirty, if you see something dirty, if you see rubbish, you know, my, my, one of my problems in, um, in France is, unfortunately, we have, a, we have cats. We rescued a cat, a cat, and I did not realize that by rescuing a cat, we were going to have lots of death on our hands, unfortunately. <laughs> so now I'm, I can't kill the cats. And I, I try to stop the cat from killing things. And so often, you know, we go, I don't know why, we go into the, the, the bathroom and then you'll find, you know, a little mice or a little rat or whatever they find. And it's interesting, you know, that often, you know, there is a... And, you know, how, what can I do? I mean, you know, if it's still alive, I kind of try to save it. And if it's dead, well, I have to dispose of it. But, you know, just, what do we do? Are we just with it? And in a way, just do what is necessary, what is important, instead of, if only I don't have a cat, and if only the cat, and I mean, the cat is a cat. I mean, can't change much his nature, apart from feeding it well and catching it. But it's interesting, that moment of seeing something, that you're, in a way, you don't want to be there. You don't want to be there in that way. But what is interesting also with the eyes is actually teaches something also about sometimes we grasp at what is not there. I can understand grasping at what is there, fair enough. But grasping at something that is not there, that is adding something even more. And I, 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 I see it in myself, I see it in different ways, I've seen it in Stephen, and I can remember seeing it in my mother. When I was young, my young days, 16, 18, I was a hippie. I was a beatnik, and you know, I had all kind of a weird outfit. And, and I remember my mother often looking at me, and I could see. She next, she would see me as I was with, you know, kind of like a kind of a, a, a high hat and kind of you know clothes with lots of holes and barefoot and etc. And we are going to the market together. And I could see she was seeing me and seeing the perfect daughter with the perfect hairdo and the perfect clothes. You know, and sometimes she said, all right. And then sometimes she said, go and change. But I could see, you know, she, 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 she was grasping at something that was not there. And often I feel we do this. We see something and actually 
We would prefer something else to be there. And I can understand. I mean, sometimes she told me, go and change, and I would go and change. But sometimes, in a way, if we keep doing this, it means we are not engaging with what is in front of us. And so, in a way, we, we, it, it's bypassing us. I think often we do this with meditation. I feel often when, you know, like we, you are 50 meditators, and I feel sometimes there are 100 meditators. There is a one sitting here, the real one, and there is the perfect one next to, to that meditator. And then the real meditator is comparing himself or herself to the perfect meditator. And then more generally you come short. And then you get a little kind of frustrated. Ah, if only I was like the perfect, not moving, no pain, no thought. Ah, would not this be wonderful? It would, but it, it could not last long. <laughs> so in a way, to see what we do when we grasp at something that is not there, in a way, it stops us from actually being the best meditator we can be. Because when we compare ourselves, we're not meditating. Then we have the sounds. We hear the sounds. What do we do? And that is interesting in meditation. I mean, here, there's not so much sound, but sometimes we hear the sound of the bird. Tweet, 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 tweet. We generally always love the sound of the bird. Apart from the sound of the rooks in Easter, Easter retreat, we have all the rooks. They're very noisy. I like them, but not everybody does. And so, nice sound. Mm, I like this. Ooh, this is really helpful for the meditation. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And then, like yesterday, I don't know what was going on, but there sounded like there was some sewing. <clears throat> what did we do with that? Just sound of saw rising and falling, rising and passing away. Oh, who is sewing? I could not they wait for the meditation to stop. You know, I can't meditate. What do we do with the sound? Do we just listen to them, creatively engage with them, or do we grasp, do we reject? Also, what is interesting with the sound is words. We listen to words. And what are words? Words are just a few waves, sonorous waves. And they're gone. This is something which is amazing. Sound, which is just, I say a sound, it's gone. And it's really, I mean, it's nothing. And some, sound, some words you've heard 10 years ago, and you still remember it. And you sit in meditation, the breath, the body, yes, yes. Stupid. They said I was stupid. How could they say I was stupid? They were stupid to say I was stupid. And you get really caught. And it becomes extremely painful when in this moment of sitting, nobody said it. <laughs> and it was said 10 years ago or a week ago. I mean, it's gone. But actually, we grasp at it. And by grasping at it, we make it last so much longer. And it's so painful. Then we have smells. Smell on retreat is interesting in terms of food. And you can sometimes might feel the warmth of the smell. Mm, what's for lunch? 
Something like curry. Mm, I like curry. I hate curry. Oh, not curry again. Just what do we do when we smell something? Or if we go toward the garden, there might be the smell of compost, the smell of manure. I remember for a while long ago, we used to go and uh, do some writing in a little hut in Switzerland. I mean, it was beautiful above a lake. It was the most beautiful place you could think of peaceful, quiet, it was so exquisite. And the one time we went there, the farmer put lots of manure on the field all around the hut. So it was sticking the whole time. <laughs> and it was so interesting, that kind of, you know, the expectation of a beautiful rural Switzerland. But I mean, it's beautiful because they put manure on the grass and everything. And it was very interesting to see that sometimes it was just smell, manure, fine, creative engagement. Oh, and then, oh, I hate it, you know, closing everything. And just to see the movement in an app. And in a way, what it said, what the, with the creative engagement, there was just peace and openness, and I could move from it and go for a walk. I mean, all the while, there was tightness. There was kind of tension. Then there is a taste. And again, here, I mean, again, this is the same. And that's what I, I would encourage you to do during the, when you eat the food. You know, you see the food. And then already your expectation either are raised or are put down. Uh, not that again. Mm. Then you smell it. Mm. And then... Mmm, I'm going to like this. Oh, this, uh, this looks very good. This smells so good. So then you put lots. Then you start to eat it. And if it tastes good, mmm, that was a good choice. And if it tastes bad, ah, how am I going to get rid of it without anybody seeing, you know? And in a way, there is a taste. What do we do? You know? And it's just to kind of explore, explore the taste how we react to it, how we grasp, how we engage. And what is also interesting with the taste is that it can really demonstrate something very interesting. How we grasp at newness. And how by grasping at newness, we set ourselves up. And this is, you can experience this more easily in restaurants. You go to a restaurant and they serve you a dish you have never had or you have not had in a very long time, and you taste the dish, and it's fantastic. It's the best couscous, it's the best whatever that you have eaten in your whole life. It's a fantastic experience. And you think, wow. And what do you do? Generally, the next day, you go back to the same restaurant to have the same experience. And... It's not bad, but it's not like yesterday. And what has happened there? The fact is that it was new. And because it was new, in contrast, it was amazing. But if we have it again, we cannot have the same contrast because it's very recent. And so it's old. And I think actually the same thing happened with meditation experience. 
The first time you have a meditation experience, you feel really calm, really clear. It's so amazing. You feel, oh, wow, this is so amazing. Why is it amazing? In contrast to how you were before. Before you were really agitated, you were really not feeling well and not peaceful. and oh, Suddenly it feels so good. But then... The more you meditate, the more you feel peaceful and the less there is contrast. And so you feel, but I had that amazing experience. Why don't I have that amazing experience anymore? Because you're not back there. You're not, you don't have the same contrast. So in a way to look at the way we can grasp at the newness of the experience. It doesn't mean we cannot have a fresh experience. In a way, each meditation is a new meditation. Each meal we taste is a new meal, because in a way we are different. But in a way, to look at the expectation of the excitement, but often that what we add, what we exaggerate, and we're grasping at that. Then there is a body sensation. In a way that we, we can have a tendency... Again, we have a sensation. If, it, if it's a good sensation, mm, I want to stay a long time to keep having that sensation. And this is very dangerous if you do this on the beach. You know, uh, recently I was very funny because uh, I, I had a, because of my pain, my back. I was going to the phys, uh, the physiotherapist, and you know he looked like me. He was not very suntan or anything. And the next moment, the next day, I see him two days later, and he's like, you know, he's been to the Bahamas. And I thought, you know, in one day, how can he manage that? And it was raining in Bordeaux, so I thought, you know, I said, well, we all said, wow, I mean, you, you Sunday, it's like he had kind of a heat stroke. And he said, oh, I was in Paris, and I was watching the Paris tennis kind of a competition, and there was a bit of sun, and it was fun, and he did not notice, and he got a heat streak and got the sunburn. And again, sometimes, if, if the, the sensation is good, we think, oh, well, you know, let's continue, let's continue. But, I mean, sometimes it can continue, and it's fine, and sometimes not. So, you know, to see, do we grasp at the pleasant sensation? Or do we reject the unpleasant sensation? And I think I've already mentioned that, how easy is it, it is in a way to exaggerate. You know, you're sitting in meditation here. It could be your first meditation, your first retreat to sit so much. And you sit there, especially if you sit on the floor. And then your, your knee, your knee, I mean, it's really painful. And you think, but will I be able to ever walk again? Will I be able to get out of Gaia House? I, you know, I'm, I'm, you know... And generally, you stand up, and it's fine. Or we, you, we, or we have pins and needles. That's you know, if you sit that way, often you have pins and needles, and you kind of like, oh, I'm going to have pins and needles forever after. I won't be able to get up. And you wait five minutes, three minutes, and then it just goes. But you see, what do we do when there is a painful sensation? What do we do? Do we grasp at it, or do we creatively? engage with it. And then there are thoughts. And I think this is very important to see that we come into contact with thought. 
One moment we have a thought, and next, one moment we don't have a thought, and next we have it. I think it's very important to see, to become aware of the, in a way, constant contact with thought. That, you know, thought arises. And I think this is actually one of the benefits of meditation, to become aware of the kind of thought we come in contact with through our mind, and to see what do we do with them. Because a lot of the time we have the thought and we grasp at it or we reject it. Either way, we, we, we give it more power than it can have. I remember once I was feeling really thwarted by French bureaucracy. So thwarted. I come out and I was standing paralyzed on the pavement. And I look at my thought and my thought was, this is hopeless. I am hopeless. And I thought what was interesting was that by grasping at that thought, I paralyzed myself. I was standing on the pavement immobile. And then I looked and I said, wait a minute. Am I hopeless? Is this hopeless? And I realized not. I can read, I can write, I can feel form, I can continue and, you know, let's get on with this bureaucratic endeavor. And in the end, I manage after a few months. But I could see when you, you grasp at the thought, I am helpless, this is hopeless. This actually can really fix you. It can really, in a way, stop us. And that's why I think it's important to look, at, to, to see, in a way, we go off, we have the breath, the sensation, we go off. And before we return, just a little light on the thought. Where did I go? Not to analyze it, but just to see what kind of thought it was. What was that? Just to see. Very briefly, you don't have to even name it, but just to see. And then to return. Because it makes us more aware of the kind of thought we have. And then see which one do I grasp? Which one, in a way, nearly it's like you have the feeling it grasps you? And, and, and so to kind of start to learn, to more, be more creatively engaged with our thought, to see what happens with them. And at that level, what is interesting is the inner language. To, to start to see what do I say to myself, because you're talking to yourself a lot of the time, commentary, etc., etc. And what do I say? And often we, I would say, have quite a harsh language inside ourselves. I should not be like this. It should not be like this. It must be this way. It cannot be. It's very often very categorical, very fixed. And I think what is interesting with meditation is to try to move it, to play with it. I could, maybe, it might, possibly. And to see how can I actually transform it. How can I creatively engage with it in that way of playing with it instead of, in a way, by grasping at it or rejecting it, fixing it, giving it more power. And another thing I wanted to do, but uh, was to look a little, because I've been talking a little about the self and looking a little at what I would say, grasping or creative engagement toward ourselves. 
first to see when in Buddhism we talk of selflessness or no self, to really see does not mean that there is no self whatsoever. Again, it is qualified that there is no separate, isolated, independent, fixed self. That's all that is negated. The self itself is not. But a certain type of self is seen as not being that way. And so in a way to see, and to me this is what meditation helps us to see, that we are a flow of conditions, a flow of inner conditions meeting outer conditions. And I would say in a way the key to the meditation is the creative engagement with that flow of conditions. And so in a way to see that in a way there is this operative self, there is this functioning self. And because I have different conditions, then of course myself will be different from yourself. Something will be a bit similar, something will be a bit different. So there is a certain, although there is changing, things change, at the same time there is a certain continuity. That's very important to see. Impermanence doesn't mean that things change constantly. Tomorrow morning, I might not be there because I have a, a heart attack, but you won't find a giraffe sitting here. This, I think, is extremely unlikely. <laughs> so in a way, there, is, there can be certain change, but certain ones are kind of a little impossible. So to see, there is a certain constancy. And so to see that actually we made up by that flow of condition, meeting the outer conditions through the senses, and often what we do in terms of ourselves is that we grasp at one of the conditions that forms ourselves and then we reduce ourselves to that. And through that we limit ourselves. And I think this is something to look at also. For example, we might grasp at a physical aspect. For example, myself, I could grasp at the fact that I am small. But actually, I feel I am tall, but because I am the tallest in the family. So this is kind of a little condition, you know. Somebody could feel differently, but what do we do with certain physics? We might feel or grasp that we are beautiful or ugly or this or that. And what would that mean? Generally, we would reduce ourselves to that. Or at the, personally, I have sciatica physically. And so if I grasp at it, I'm always going to have sciatica. I always have sciatica. Then I become the sciatica person. But I don't always have it. And even if I have it, I can creatively engage with it. But if I grasp at it, I will fix it. I will fix myself in it. Or with a mental attribute. We could just kind of grasp at one mental condition. I am clever. I am stupid. And again, we can magnify it. Once I did two weeks correction on the computer for a book, and then I made a mistake in operation, and they disappeared forever after in one nanosecond. And then I realized, oh! And what was interesting was the first thought. I am stupid. Then I thought, no, I did something which was not clever. I did not know I could do it. I will not do it again. <laughs> but I was not stupid forever after, doomed to do this forever after. 
So I could just, you know, start the correction again and be okay with it. I think in a way, the, the grasping ah, tighten us. It becomes heavy. It kind of limits us. When the creative engagement is lighter, it's kind of, okay, what can I do with this? How can I creatively be with this? Or there is emotion. I'll talk more about this uh, tomorrow. But emotion, uh, you know, we have a tendency, I mean, emotions are very intense. And we, and in a way, we feel that we are them. But we have them. They arise and they pass away. But the more you grasp at them, I am an angry person. I am a joyful person. Nothing lasts. It just depends on conditions. And so in a way, how can I creatively engage with my emotional condition, my mental condition, my physical condition. Or qualities, that is interesting, qualities. We can grasp at qualities. I am a good person. I am a bad person. I will always be good, always be bad. But goodness and badness arise upon condition. And to me, I am very great admirer of uh, Gandhi from from very young age. He was one of my heroes. But when I re- read about his family life, it was terrible. He was a terrible father. He was actually kind of weird. So at one level, he was a great person. He was a good person. At the same time, he was a terrible father. And he was a bit weird. And this coexisted. So he was not just one or the other. Or if I think of this man, Karl Upchurch, I read his book, a fantastic book. Uh, quite old now, but very good book. And he was, uh, uh, he's dead now, but he was an African-American and who came up in a very bad uh, place, very bad area, became very violent, ended in jail. And then he was put in kind of, uh, because he was so violent, they put him in a, in a room. But he was violent to protect himself. And they put him in a room by himself, a kind of single cell, uh, separate from everybody else. And in a way, that's what changed his life. In the room, there was a table. And one of the table legs was too short. And so somebody had put the Shakespeare work on it. It was big enough, you know, the right. And he had nothing to do in solitary confinement. And he read the Shakespeare work for a week. And he transformed his life. And then he got out of jail, went to university, and then worked for uh, peace in the gang, between gangs. And he was amazing. And so in a way, nobody is totally good, totally bad. The quality, again, arrives. We can cultivate them, of course. But also, it's what do we do? Do we see that they arise upon condition? Do we see that we can cultivate them? How do we creatively engage with them? Last one, because I, I have a... Last one is about grasping at self. What is funny about grasping at self is often we don't like ourselves. So in a way, often we are grasping at a self that we don't love. So we reject it. So it makes us feel even worse. But if we loved ourselves, ourselves being with us all the time, 
We would be happy all the time, wouldn't we? Anyway, this is what I wanted to say this evening. Are there any questions or comments? Yes. I think it has different aspects. One, one aspect, I think actually we can be creatively engaged at all levels. I think we can be creatively engaged physically, mentally, emotionally. And that's what I talk of creative awareness. That actually it is, to, it is not analytical. It is not thinking in the way we, we often think. I remember when I was um, 18, and that's one of the reasons I started to do meditation. When I was, uh, from a very young age, I was very idealistic. And so when I was 16, 18, I wanted to love everybody. I wanted to be selfless. I did not want to be egoistic. I did not want to be jealous. And then I would be jealous. And then I would say to myself, don't be jealous. And it would have no effect whatsoever. <laughs> And in a way, this is why I started to do meditation, because I could see that with a certain type of mind, it doesn't work. You can't just say to yourself, do this or that. And so, in a way, the power of the meditation, what I would call this creative awareness, I would say the mind is involved because the mind is part of the being. But it is not this kind of what I would call uh, thinking in that way. It's more what I would call a whole experience. You kind of look at yourself in a different way. So it's kind of, that's why I call it creative engagement. That's why I never use the word bare awareness. For me, awareness is not just staring at reality, but it's really this creative awareness of the whole person, which in a way gets involved with the whole thing, myself in the world, in the moment. And then there is often what happens, there is that kind of uh, that beam of looking at something directly. It could be directly looking at the mind, directly looking at something outside, as you said, directly looking at the breath, directly looking at the sensation. And it's the way I look at it, which in a way is transformative. So, so, so yes, it's at that level, you could say it, by, it bypasses what we, we prize so much, what I would call the rational thinking, but still it uses the mind to do it. The mind, but the body, and the whole thing to do it. Does that make sense? like so much to use the word observer because my feeling if we if we think observer we think somebody is outside of ourselves looking at us 
So that's why I prefer to talk about spaciousness. You see, if there is spaciousness, I can look at my sensation, at my mind, at my feeling, and outside, in a big way, you could say, in a multi-perspectival way. And within that, I will not look at it in a fixed way, in a kind of reductive way. I will look at it in an open way. Ah, sensation. Instead of saying, this is my sensation, this is my need, this is terrible, I don't want it. I mean, this is kind of set a certain thing. Instead of, ah, what's happening in my knee? Ah, can I be with the breath? How it is to really be with the breath? And so you go inside it. That's why I talk of, in a way, going inside. So to me, it's not just kind of, not just observing. It's more being inside, the whole experience. If I could say, but yes, you have a little the feeling of that you're observing something because you're not caught in it in the same way. I think this is a difference. Often we kind of, we're so identified with it. We're so grasping it. That I am my thought. Instead of here, you, I have a thought. Hmm, what kind of thought? What kind of sensation? And so we, we're not just looking at it. We, I would say, penetrate it. And by penetrating it, we experience in a different way. Yes? Um, so attachment can be tricky. And sometimes, in a practical way, attachment can masquerade itself as creative engagement. Sometimes there'd be a situation when the intelligent thing to do would be to do the aversion and walk away. So can you speak to how, how in a practical way do you draw the line and say, now it's time for creative engagement. No, that's really time for being clever. I really should walk away from that. You see, uh, I mean... Uh, there is creative engagement which goes together with creative response. That's why I talk of engagement. For me, you engage with something, and through that engagement, you respond in a creative way. So if you see something which is dreadful, let's say you see some kind of, you know, I don't know, some dirty thing on the floor. This happened to me with uh, my grandma once. It was, you know. You can, ah, this is horrible, ah, I wish it would, you know, that, but ah. Nothing is going to happen. Oh, ah, yes, this is dirty, this has happened, I must do something about it. I'll clean grandmother, then I clean this, and then we can continue. So it doesn't mean that you don't act. I think it's very, that's why I use the word, that's why I don't use the word attachment anymore. Because we have the, reason, the feeling that detachment, I just have to detach and... But personally, no, I'm talking of a creative engagement which leads to a creative response. Sometimes you just have to do nothing. Creative engagement is just be there. And sometimes creative engagement asks for a quick response. I mean, once we saw two guys beating each other, and we are three women of my age, my size, and we thought, we have to stop them. So we went to stop them. And luckily it worked. <laughs> Could have had the opposite effect, but that day it worked. So we saw something, contact, we saw this guy beating each other, but we thought, we can't let it. So we went and we had them stopped. But they might have gone somewhere else to beat themselves up. I don't know. 
But so you see, I think to me that's why I told, use the word creative. That it's kind of a potentiality. You instead of coming fixed, it's like this or it's like that. Creative response. Do I have to just sit there? Do I have to do something? Do I have to run away? I mean, sometimes we have to run away. I mean, if a, if a car comes, you don't just, ah, a car is coming. Mm, yes, a car. No, you, you get out. So I think, to me, this is a creative thing. That you, it just depends. There is not one way to, to be creatively engaged. I think, again, it's a condition. You know, what, what are the conditions? My own condition, the outside condition. And so in a way, it's kind of seeing as much as we can, but sometimes we can't, the whole picture. And to me, what I find is the more I go, and this is what I, 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 I stress, the stability and the openness that the meditation can help us to develop. That by developing stability, when we meet somebody, something which is... Like this, we can be stable. We are not destabilized. We, okay, this is tricky. How can I be with this? And at the same time, the openness, because if you are not a fixed idea about it, sometimes you, in the moment, you will, find, you will think the creative response, unprepared. You will just respond in the way that works. And it's not something you can prepare. And sometimes, of course, you have to prepare. It just depends. Again, sometimes it's totally instinctive and creative because you have created the ground for that, and sometimes you have to prepare yourself. And we have to stop there because you have to walk. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.